Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 290. Today's big Bible questions are, can one person fully know God? Plus, why is it important for believers to worship together and not be separate? So happy Monday, friends, less than 48 hours before my wife and the kid's mom returns from the deep south, and we here are counting down the days at the Bible Podcast Bunker. Our readings for today include 1 Kings chapter 15, Psalm 99, Psalm 100 and Psalm 101, Ezekiel 45, and Colossians chapter 2, the very first part of which will serve as our focus passage. But first, some most excellent listener feedback from a friend with many names, many siblings, and many submarines. One of those facts might be made up to protect his identity since he prefers to go by where, what, ha. He left a comment on our YouTube page relative to our recent discussion of prayer and praying for places and people we've never met. And I want to share that comment with you because it's good. And he says, Can it ever be useless to speak to God? If we believe that he is powerful and that he loves us, then we must also believe that he hears us and acts upon the requests we bring to him. Now, what specific effect each individual prayer has? That is the question. When I was very young, and even as a young man, I used to pray that the Berlin Wall would fall. I never thought that it would come down, but I prayed for it, partly because of the influence of Brother Andrew. In 1986, when Ronald Reagan told Premier Gorbachev to come here to Berlin and tear down this wall, I thought it was a noble speech, but that it was quixotic at best. One evening in November 1989, I turned on the TV and I saw West Berliners climbing onto the wall, dancing on the wall, spray-painting the wall, striking the wall with sledgehammers, and cutting it with concrete saws. The East Berlin guards looked on and smiled. I couldn't believe my eyes. The next day, the Berlin Wall fell. Was it because of politics? Was it inevitable? Was it chance? I think that the wall fell because of the combined weight of the prayers of millions of Christians on both sides of that wall. God answers prayers. If I'm truly honest and think carefully, I've never prayed a prayer that was not answered. I did not receive all that I asked, but that is because I too often ask for foolish things. But God has never withheld good from me. God is faithful and he answers prayer. Well, that is a most insightful and encouraging comment. Dear friend, thank you for sharing it with us all. Perhaps you should consider a career as a writer. One other comment from the masked man. He says this, so that they... It's a quote, so that they do not transmit holiness to the people through their clothes. And then he says, that's a mind-blowing thought. You know, I was wondering if others would catch that verse, which is from Ezekiel 44, 19 as well. I'll read it again. It's talking about the priests having to change clothes before they live, leave the temple area so that they do not transmit holiness to the people through their clothes. What in the world does that even mean? I've honestly no idea. That's perhaps a Bible mystery to tackle down the road. I wholeheartedly agree that that is a mind-blowing verse. When I read it while recording the show, I actually stopped for quite some time to read it and reread it and kind of scratching my head thinking, what is this? Now, you guys didn't hear that part because I edited it out, but that's a, a verse that I just slammed on the brakes while I was reading it to really process for a moment. Unfortunately, we're not able to solve that mystery today, 
But if you have any insight on that passage, I would love to hear from you. You can contact us through our webpage, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, we are Bible Reading Podcast on Facebook, and I'm Chase A. Thompson. And Chase A. Thompson AL is our YouTube page. Not many people listen to the podcast there, but a few do. And uh, just catch up with us any way you can. Our Bible question today is, I think, slightly less material. Dit, 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 dit. Our Bible question today is slightly less mysterious, but actually just as profound, Actually, maybe even a little bit more. A fascinating truth is lying in plain sight at the very beginning of Colossians 2, but it's honestly not a truth I've heard discussed from this text very often in church. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached on it. Um, and uh, I've never heard, not heard Christians talk about this passage a whole, whole lot. And therefore, I consider it something of an undiscovered or maybe just unappreciated treasure. So let's read the whole chapter together, listening to hear if it somehow answers today's big Bible question. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul writes, For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Some people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these re regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. 
So, in case you missed it, the Bible passage or section of this chapter that sparked our question for the day is verses 2 and 3, where Paul writes, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I think Paul is here expressing a very deep and profound truth, and maybe even more than one deep and profound truth. In the first part of verse 2, he begins a conditional statement. He wants the hearts or mindsets or the inner being of other Christians to be encouraged and joined together with each other in love. Now, that's great, but it's not particularly surprising or profound yet, given that there are just so many Bible passages that call Christians to love and encourage each other. The profound part is actually in the conditional. The results of the hearts of the believers being encouraged and joined together in love. So it's like an if-then statement, if you're familiar with programming at all or logic. If this happens, then that happens. Paul is saying when the believers, followers of Jesus, are encouraged and joined together in love, according to Paul, those believers will have all the riches of complete understanding and have knowledge of God's mystery and treasure, which is Christ. Now, I take that passage to be showing us a deep and crucial spiritual dynamic. In and of ourselves as individuals, our insight and understanding will be limited. We certainly won't be rich in complete understanding, isolated on our own. However, joined together with the body of Christ, with other believers in a church-type gathering setting, when we are joined together in love and encouragement, we will be on the way to richly having complete understanding into the things of God together, into the person and character of God together, and into his most profound act, the sending of his son Jesus. In other words, there's a reason why we are the body of Christ. We know God and are fully known by him as a body, not so much by in, as in individuals. Now, I have many friends who I believe are wonderful Christians but they either do not believe in gathering with the, quote, institutional church, or they just don't prioritize gathering with uh, believers. Ultimately, it means those friends don't usually or regularly gather with other believers and worship, pray, seek God, and study his word together on like a weekly basis. They may do so sporadically, occasionally, but almost never every Lord's Day. And the end result is the more limited our interactions are with other believers, the more limited our understanding of God and his ways will be. Now, this doesn't mean you have to go to a traditional brick-and-mortar church with a sanctuary and a building and all of that kind of stuff, but it does, I think, mean that regularly gathering with other believers in a house, by the river, in a coffee shop, wherever, for worship, ministry, prayer, and time in the Word is an absolute essential. Minimizing gathering together with other people that are followers of Jesus means minimizing your understanding. I have loved for a long time how C.S. Lewis explains this truth in the context of friendship. I should say he begins discussing friendship, but ends by discussing how to know God. And in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. 
By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away... I have less of Ronald. By the way, he's talking about J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. Lewis continues, Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. Then they can say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. For in this love, to divide is not to take away. Of course, the scarcity of kindred souls, not to mention practical considerations about the size of rooms and the audibility of voices, sets limits to the enlargement of the circle. But within those limits, we possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her him in, in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. Now, if that's not terribly clear to you, maybe this quote from Pastor Tim Keller, who explains what Lewis is saying, will make it more clear. He says, here's what Lewis means. Your Christian friends see parts of Jesus Christ you will never know or love unless you know and love them. Your Christian friends see things in Jesus you'll never see, you'll never know because of who they are, because of what they've been through, because of their experiences in a sense, because of where they're standing. Take a look at an object. Any place you stand, you see the same object, but you see it differently. It depends on where you're standing. You see a different aspect, a different side of that object. Your Christian friends know parts of Jesus Christ you will never know or love unless you know and love them. Why? Because he's real, because he's risen, because he's a real person. He's not someone you know through historical research. He says, lo, I am with you always. I am with you in the community of my people. That's where you're going to really find me fully. So what Lewis is saying and what Keller is saying is that we get to know each other by each other. In the first illustration that Lewis uses, his their friend Charles has died. And he says, I've lost a part of Ronald, J.R.R. Tolkien, because Charles isn't there to bring out that part of Ronald anymore. And I don't bring that part of Ronald out. In other words, in a group of people, we tend to know each other better because we tend to bring different parts of ourselves out with each other. And even more importantly to our discussion today, we know God in community better because we each have different experiences and different grasps of the truth of God's word in community together. There's certain things I think I understand about God better than some of you do, and there's most certainly certain things you understand about God better than I do. And when we're together and loving each other and sharing these things, it raises the vision and understanding of all of us. So let's know him together. 
I think there's a very important reason why Hosea 6.3 is in the plural addressed to the congregation, not addressed to a single individual, where it says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We continue in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 1. In the 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijam came, became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Abijam walked in all the sins of his father before him had committed, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. But for the sake of David, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up his son after him and by preserving Jerusalem. For David did what was right in the Lord's sight, and he did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hethite. There had been war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of Rehoboam's life. The rest of the events of Abijam's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. There was also war between Abijam and Jeroboam. Abijam rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. His son Asa became king in his place. In the twentieth year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all of the idols that his ancestors had made. He also removed his grandmother Makkah from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asa chopped down her obscene image and burned it in the Kidron Valley. The high places were not taken away, but Asa was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his entire life. He brought his father's consecrated gifts and his own consecrated gifts into the Lord's temple, silver, gold, and utensils. There was war between Asa and King Basha of Israel throughout their reigns. Israel's King Basha went to war against Judah. He built Ramah in order to keep anyone from leaving or coming to King Asa of Judah. So Asa withdrew all the silver and gold that remained in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the treasuries of the royal palace and gave it to his servants. Then King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrimon, son of Hetzion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a treaty between me and you, between my father and your father. Look, I have sent you a gift of silver and gold. Go and break your treaty with King Bashav of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa, and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and Chinnereth, and the whole land of Naphtali. When Basha heard about it, he quit building Ramah and stayed in Terza. Then King Asa gave a command to everyone without exception in Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timbers Basha had built it with. Then King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah with them. The rest of all the events of Asa's reign, along with all his might, all his accomplishments in the cities he built, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. But in his old age, he developed a disease in his feet. 
Then Asa rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of his ancestor David. His son Jehoshaphat became king in his place. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Judah's king Asa. He reigned over Israel two years, and Nadab did what was evil in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his father and the sin he had caused Israel to commit. Then Bashah, son of Ajai of the house of Issachar, conspired against Nadab, and Bashah struck him down at Gibbethon of the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging Gibbethon. In the third year of Judah's king Asa, Bashah killed Nadab and reigned in his place. When Bashah became king, he struck down the entire house of Jeroboam. He did not leave Jeroboam any survivors, but destroyed his family according to the word of the Lord. He had spoken through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This was because Jeroboam had angered the Lord God of Israel by the sins he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. The rest of the events of Nadab's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. There was war between Asa and King Bashah of Israel throughout their reigns. In the third year of Judah's king Asa, Bashah, son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel, and he reigned in Tertsa twenty-four years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and walked in the ways of Jeroboam, and the sin he had caused Israel to commit. Psalm 99, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those calling on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes he gave them. Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their sinful actions. Exalt the Lord, our God, bow and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Psalm 100. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. Psalm 101 verse 1. I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I will live with a heart of integrity in my house. I will not let anything worthless guide me. I hate the practice of transgression. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. My eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. The one who follows the way of integrity may serve me. No one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace. The one who tells lies will not be retained here to guide me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, wiping out all the evildoers from the Lord's city. Ezekiel 45 verse 1. When you divide the land by lot as an inheritance, set aside a donation to the Lord, a holy portion of the land, eight and one-third miles long and six and two-third miles wide. The entire region will be holy. 
In this area, there will be a square section for the sanctuary, 875 by 875 feet, with 87.5 feet of open space all around it. From this holy portion, you will measure off an area 8 and one-third miles long and three and a third miles wide in which the sanctuary, the most holy place, will stand. It will be a holy area of the land to be used by the priests who minister in the sanctuary who approach to serve the Lord. It will be a place for their houses as well as a holy area for the sanctuary. There will be another area eight and a third miles long and three and a third miles wide for the Levites who minister in the temple. It will be their possession for towns to live in. As the property of the city set aside an area one and two-thirds miles wide and eight and a third miles long adjacent to the holy donation of land, it will be for the whole house of Israel, and the prince will have the area on each side of the holy donation of land in the city's property adjacent to the holy donation in the city's property, stretching to the west on the west side and to the east on the east side. Its length will correspond to one of the tribal portions from the western boundary to the eastern boundary. This will be his land as a possession in Israel. My princes will no longer oppress my people, but give rest, give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. This is what the Lord God says. You have gone too far, princes of Israel. Put away violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Put an end to your evictions of my people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You are to have honest scales, an honest dry measure, and an honest liquid measure. The dry measure and the liquid measure will be uniform with the liquid measure containing five and a half gallons and the dry measure holding half a bushel. Their measurement will be a tenth of the standard larger capacity measure. The shekel will weigh 20 garas. Your mina will equal 60 shekels. This is the contribution you are to offer. Three quarts from six bushels of wheat and three quarts from six bushels of barley. The quota of oil in liquid measures will be 1% of every core. The core equals 10 liquid measures or one standard larger capacity measure since 10 liquid measures equal one standard larger capacity measure. And the quota from the flock is one animal out of every 200 from the well-watered pastures of Israel. These are for the grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. All the people of the land must take part in this contribution for the prince in Israel. Then the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings for the festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths for all the appointed times in the house of Israel will be the prince's responsibility. He will provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. In the first month, on the first day of the month, you are to take a young, unblemished bull and purify the sanctuary. The priest is to take some of the blood from the sin offering and apply it to the temple doorposts, the four corners of the altar's edge and the doorposts of the gate of the inner court. You are to do the same thing on the seventh day of the month for everyone who sins unintentionally or through ignorance. In this way, you will make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you are to celebrate the Passover, a festival of seven days during which unleavened bread will be eaten. On that day, the prince will provide a bull as a sin offering on behalf of himself and all the people of the land. During the seven days of the festival, he will provide seven bulls and seven rams without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord on each of the seven days, along with a male goat each day for a sin offering. He will also provide a grain offering of half a bushel per bull and half a bushel per ram, along with a gallon of oil for every half bushel. At the festival that begins on the 15th day of the seventh month, he will provide the same things for seven days, the same sin offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and oil. Well, amen. Friends, may the Lord give you a blessed 
and peaceful and comforting Monday. Good day to you and Godspeed.